This is the AMA Los Angeles Podcast. Welcome to the AMA Los Angeles Podcast. I'm Joel Metzger. This is part one of a three-part podcast with a live panel on content creation and distribution, recorded live at the Edmonds headquarters in Santa Monica. Your moderator is Philip Reventish, president of the AMA Los Angeles. The panelists will introduce themselves, so let's go ahead and join the discussion already in progress. What we are going to be talking about tonight is content creation, and uh, uh, but great content is useless if nobody sees it. So we're going to be having a panel session, and the way we're breaking it up this evening is we're going to be talking about content creation first, and then again, if you've got great, great content but nobody sees it, you've got to have good distribution. So it's two sides of that coin. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight with different topics within that. And then we'll try to finish the main panel by 8.15 to give um, you folks chance to ask some questions for a Q&A session. And we'll go from there. So let's meet our panel. are you people? Shane Mady with MediaLink. Uh, I'm sure most of you have heard of our company. We work with digital strategy, acceleration, executive search, private equity. We help them find out uh, interesting companies that they should be leveraging into. And of course, we work with many of the uh, media reviews in the marketplace. I handle Los Angeles, kind of the strategy, working with a lot of companies in uh, digital content creation, distribution, and monetization. I'm RJ Kirkland, uh, Regional Vice President for Business Insider. Uh, I manage uh, the sales and business development team here on the West Coast. Uh, many of you probably know Business Insider in the business space, but also uh, a lot of what we're going to be talking about uh, from, from my perspective, from the Business Insider perspective, is what we've done with Insider, uh, which many of you may be familiar with some of the things that the tweets you get or what fills up your Facebook news feed about what we're doing from a lifestyle standpoint. So it's very much video focused and I think uh, we'll add some interesting value hopefully for tonight's conversation. Farhana Pargach at the Creative Artists Agency. I work in a group called Global Client Strategy. We focus on business building with our clients, both corporate and individual, and work very closely with our digital content and brand coverage teams and do a lot of work around the digital media space, including um, helping to launch digital studios and work with a lot of our content creators who want to understand what digital media means to them and how they can build effective businesses in that space long term. Cool. I'm Andy too. I'm the CMO at a company called Defy, and unlike these guys, you might not know Defy or our brands because uh, there's not a lot of 20-year-olds from what I can tell in the room, but um, <laughs> we are a content business here in LA. We have uh, around six networks that we um, operate and do about 800 million video views a month across about 80 shows that come out about every week or every other week. And what used to be, uh, I've been there for 10 years, which by Defy standards makes me a dinosaur for sure. But um, <laughs> what used to be short form videos have now gone to long form videos and long form videos have gone into all other types of content. So we have a movie coming out tomorrow on YouTube Red called Ghostmates. You should check it out if you're a subscriber or become one if you're not. And um, we'll talk a lot about the stuff that we make. Hello, I'm Alex Bouchon. I'm the Executive Director of Content here at Edmonds. Um, I don't need to tell you about Edmonds because, hello. Um, I just wanted to say one thing. I actually threw out my back and my neck the other day, so if I'm very stiff, it's not because I'm European. Um, <laughs> just to be very clear. Um, I, about two months ago, I took over the editorial side of the business, and about last week, I took over all of content, social media, uh, photo and photography, uh, video for the, the company. Um, 
Previous to that, I was working on the product side and the UGC side for Edmunds. And then previous to that, I was at Airbnb where I worked on the content and social marketing. Um, and then before that, it was Disney and anthropology, so a lot of content experience. So Alex, hang on to that mic because okay. as our host, you get the first question. Nice. So everybody knows the automotive industry is very competitive. Um, it's, it's a mainstay of the advertising ecosphere. Um, it's also fiercely competitive. So what is your basic approach to creating content that's compelling? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge that, that we've got is we have um, built out a product that has competed on SEO for a really long time. So if you do a Google search for um, you know, car-related information, we rank really well. We've, we've done really well there. The challenge is, though, is that a lot of companies know the SEO tricks as well. So at some point, SEO becomes a really crowded market or a really expensive market um, to compete on. So the way that I sort of take the approach is what is the value or the expertise that we have that we can create the content for that's going to serve consumers. So we have the best car experts in the world um, here writing content. Um, and so basically, we have two kinds of ways is, is reviews. Um, so what do we actually think about a car? And we test it and we give your honest opinion. Um, and then we also have research content. So how do you buy a car? How do you lease a car? And I think if we can actually inform somebody um, and help them understand how to spend 30000 or or $100,000 on a vehicle, that sort of helpfulness is really important to our content strategy. So they might find us because of Google, but they'll stay with us and they'll purchase a car through us because we actually help them. So being of use has always been a motto, no matter what company that I've worked for. Um, marketing might kind of get you in the door, SEO might get you in the door, but if you're not helpful and useful to somebody, um, why should they come back to you when they're kind of doing a Google search? So. Excellent, so Andy, um, Defy Media is creating an amazing amount of content and to quote your president, Defy Media is a weird marriage of television and digital. So how does your basic, what is your basic approach to creating content within the Defy Media umbrella? Yeah, I, you look at the, every brand is different and we have brands um, like Smosh. Smosh is uh, of the Mount Rushmore of YouTube brands. They've been around for 10 going on 11 years and they have four channels. Those channels just on YouTube alone are north of 40 million subscribers. And what we've learned 10 years ago is completely different than how we live in the world now. So there, Smosh is the brand where we're doing a full-length feature. But even in the last couple weeks, you might have seen PewDiePie, who's a big YouTuber, say he's going to shut his channel down at 50 million subscribers. And what the reality of people are facing is that YouTube's completely different and values content in a very different way than it did as recently as a year ago or two years ago. So there's no silver bullet to how we're thinking about content. But we have, like I said, um, 80 shows on the air, and some of them are five minutes long, like Honest Trailers, which you guys might have seen Honest Trailers, um, and some of them are an hour and a half long, which is a show like Movie Fights, which is a show where people fight about movies. It's not rocket science as far as the title goes. Um, and so I think it's trying to bring together creators who get the platforms that we're on. And if we're going to platforms where there's not a lot of people on them, um, like Go90 for some people in the room who might know a platform that launched this year, you've got to figure out what's their programming sensibility. So if you're going onto a platform where content like ours hasn't lived there before, we've got to have a good understanding of what's your programming ethos, what can we bring to the table, and what people really want is our audience. And they know that you can't just start an amazing platform and have no content on it, so they've got to work with people like companies up here and in the room and say, hey, we're trying to build a platform where people watch content like this. And so we've talked to people from Newform, same thing. They're building content that's going to go to a platform. They have to have a good understanding 
of what the platform values. Um, so not to non-answer it, but I think all across the board, we're trying to say, what is that platform value? And when you talk about Business Insider, launching on Facebook is completely different than launching on YouTube because the platform and the user there value completely different things that relates to what they're going to watch and how they're going to watch it. So Farhana, to follow up on that, starting with you, now working this side of the panel. So when, when you three, within your respective um, realms, are discussing content strategy, what's one of the number one things that you start discussing within that? I would think that the, you know there's a couple of different approaches that we see. We, we deal with a lot of traditional content creators who look to the digital world, and there's sort of two paths we see. You know, a business like Newform, I think, really embraces digital short form content and what their audience is looking for and the platforms that they're on. We have a lot of creators who look at digital media as a way to incubate IP that's then going to go translate to traditional formats like television or film. So I think that's a very different perspective when you're approaching it as I'm creating content for X audience on Y platform and I really want to connect and get the biggest audience I can versus what I'm doing is building a very efficient development platform so that you know when something hits, whether it's on Facebook or YouTube or Snapchat, I'm going to then be able to go to Studio X, Y, or Z and say, look at the audience that I have, look at the engagement that I have, and I therefore should own and or control this property more when I do the deal with you. RJ? Yeah, so uh, thinking about the, what we do and thinking of two properties, Business Insider and Insider. So from a Business Insider standpoint, that's very much we're, we're, we're a business news site, journalists, but we're all digital. We don't have a, a print legacy or a television legacy. So what we try to do is connect with a digital audience and making sure that when we're writing stories, they are smart. They're hard-hitting. You probably, if you're familiar with us, you've seen some of the headlines. They're, they're, they're attention-grabbing. They're accurate. They're fun. But they're also they're concise. It's made for the digital medium, and it's made for people to be able to share that content. If they see something that's interesting, you want them to share it. We want them to retweet it. People are, I'll give you a great example. Um, we send a, a, a journalist, a, a writer, out to cover the Apple's earnings call. That might be uh, a story that is... 15 paragraphs because there are so much to cover within the Apple earnings call. Um, what we'll do is that editor, she might write 10 different stories, right? Because there are so many different elements within that earnings call about Apple that are of their own story, their own element. And so when you share things and you make it snackable and you make it digestible and you make it interesting, um, that's something that people want to share. So coming at it from that perspective allows us to make business inf information interesting and shareable. Um, you know, when we talk about Insider, which is more lifestyle, it's more fun about life as an adventure. And here, the editorial team is talking about what's happening in the world from food, culture, travel, all through the eyes of a lens. So they're out there telling their stories through, through the eyes of a lens where you've got to be able to make content worthy for the news feed, right? Somebody's got to be able to stop when they're scrolling down in their feed and, and look at a video within that first second or two and say, oh, that's interesting because we're talking about sound optional text overlay video. You have to have that hook shot or that grab that, that gets them again. I want to watch this in my feed and I want to hopefully share it. Um, so, you know, we kind of look at things from, a, from two different perspectives in, in, in that way, and, but the, the consistent theme is making it palatable for how people are consuming content on the web, which is, you know, short, quick, and hard-hitting. Okay. 
So building on what's already been said, I think we look at it from a holistic approach with our clients, which is to say, if they're making content, how are they, what's the platform that's going to be on? It's got to resonate with consumers. So content that is viewed on OTT is different than content that's viewed on Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, et cetera. Um, so what's going to resonate there with the lens of the particular brand that's creating that content? So whether it's legacy uh, media companies like uh, an A&E Networks that may be taking history channel and trying to distribute that content onto Facebook or other platforms, or whether it's a digital first company uh, like Machinima or Maker Studios that's looking to engage with social video. Um, and then, of course, you have to look at the monetization thereof as well. You know, is it something that's going to resonate? You, you know, there are a lot of branded content opportunities in the marketplace. There's a lot of audiences, but if you're out there and you're trying to pitch advertisers, you know, do you have audience? Do you have distribution? It's not just content for content's sake. So fortunately, you're talking about some platforms up here that, that resonate with consumers, that are engaged, and that's, that's a big step in the battle in terms of engaging and monetizing and, and making sure that that content's going to resonate. But at the end of the day, you've got to have quality content that's able to engage consumers where they're at. So it's not just one type of content that fits all. So we look at our, our, our clients and we advocate that they need to really understand the lens, as you said, that they're creating the content through for their audience within their brand, knowing that the platform that it's on, and then taking it a step further and saying, who are the right, where are the right places to monetize? How is it the right way to monetize? Uh, and who are the right players that you should be speaking with in order to monetize that as well? Okay, so to follow up on that, one of the headlines that we used to promote this event was, why should viewers care and why should they share? So I'd like to talk a little bit more about that in terms of when you're creating the content. And Alex and Anna, you can talk a little bit more about that. But, but are there any little, like uh, RJ said, snacks, right? <laughs> are there some things that, that content creators should be considering when they're putting stuff out to be shared? I mean, for us, we have brands that people care deeply about. So we, we mentioned a brand like Smosh. It's the kind of brand that I might have the chance to work on a brand like that once ever, meaning people, we've had five Make-A-Wish requests in the last year to meet the Smosh team. That's the thing that people want fulfilled in the world. So we have a relationship with our consumer that we don't take for granted. And for as much as I think older media wants to look at as, as snacks or these little moments or these moments in their feed, People that have come up in the digital space that have been programming that space, this is not a snack. This is the main course. This is their regular diet. And it's why, back to your initial question, which I didn't answer, I suppose, about TV and the internet, is that we realized a long time ago that you couldn't turn on and off the cameras based on when somebody was helping you underwrite the bills. I think it's been a tricky part of our entire digital video ecosystem is we did so much work for hire for so many years, some people still do. That's not how television worked, which is why we adopted the DNA of a television company by always being on. And even when people aren't selling it to an auto OEM or somebody else is that we needed to be a fixture in our consumers' lives. So Smosh, as the example, is every Friday at noon for 10 years, they have put out a main channel video. Screen Junkies, every Tuesday at 10 a.m., we put out an honest trailer. If we miss, if we're one minute late, people are going nuts. And because that's their Make-A-Wish brand, they are that deeply connected to it, and so that's why we've adopted that always-on model. When we cancel a show, which happens, it's not pretty because people are so vocal and they're typically on a platform that's one click or one 
keystroke away from talking about it, and they're very used to that interaction. So we have been artful about how we bring new programs to market and take things out of the market. Um, but I think it goes back to we don't look at these things as just little quick asides. Of course, that's our hopefully gateway drug to bring people into our programming ecosystem. But then once they get there, there's a lot for them to take on. And I think that's why, a, especially a platform like YouTube, really favors having been there for a long time. It's really hard. If we said we're going to start a new channel, zero subs tomorrow, Good luck, right? There's a lot of people that have been there for a long time that control a lot of the promotional ecosystem. And it's like on-air promotion used to be when there was more on-air viewing, is that, hey, if I had the 8 o'clock slot, I got the 831 dialed. Well, if you have a 10-year legacy on YouTube, you actually have a lot of heft in how you can point to new programming. So that's part of our strategy as well. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, no, I'll just add to that. Um, you know, I was giving you more from a, an editorial perspective of how we're writing. When we talk with our marketers about how to then uh, communicate with our audience, and I mentioned Snackable or, or, or Short and Hard Inning, um, we also want to make sure that they understand their brand voice. You know, wh how do they want to communicate with our audience? What are they trying to accomplish? And, and what type of content do they want to associate themselves with? Because we see nowadays, it's not so much the, the marketing message. As a marketer, you have to understand how do you want to align your brand? How do you want to align your message? Who do you want to communicate with? What's important to them? When you start understanding what's important to them, uh, to, your, to your audience, then you can create that content or you can, we can help our, mar our partners kind of curate their own content and make it into something that is interesting, consumable, and shareable from with, with our audience. And so we've, we've done some, you know, a great example is uh, we did something a couple of months ago with Diet Coke. And so Diet Coke had a bunch of B-roll from when they did a promotion this summer about making every Coke bottle a different look and feel. And so they had taken a bunch of video with it, their, um, their factories, and it wasn't from a marketing perspective. It was more from how can they then share what it is they're doing at this bottler in case they want to do it in EMEA or APAC or somewhere else, but they just wanted to have that for, for that, that kind of training or posterity. So when they came to us and we were talking to them about ideas for the summer, we said, hey, great, let, let, our, you know, let our team go in there and kind of film the process and talk about this. And they go, oh, we're already done. Um, so we said, well, give us what you have. And so we did. We took, we took, we took all of this, made it into some, a really compelling 30-second video um, that just kind of positioned Diet Coke about being unique and different and having kind of that, that one individual, find your individual personality, which matched the, the theme of what, what they were talking about. And it was, um, it got about, so, well, it, it got great, I won't get into the numbers, but it, it, the numbers were great. You still find it on, on Insider. Um, they took that theme and then tried it on their own Facebook page with, with their own messaging, and it, it just didn't work. And so you have to make sure you find your audience, you have to make sure that you're in the, the right places for your audience to connect with the brand, uh, and, then, and then try to hope that some, some magic happens within the process, because it's not always the case. Every, every best, uh, I think what Philip, you said, uh, um, you know, it's not a lot of times where, you know, we think we're going to make something viral and it doesn't necessarily work in the boardroom. It, it actually just works by trial and error. And, and that's, that's something that, that happens a lot with us from an editorial staff. And we also try to tell our marketing partners that you've got to get out there, test, learn, and iterate. And that's why if you do, if you understand that brand voice and you make it snackable, you can, uh, you can have some success. I actually have something to add to that too. And you guys can probably speak more to this than I can. But what I've seen from a lot of successful content uh, partners is they have to have an authoritative voice 
in terms of what they stand for to connect with that audience, and they have to be authentic as well. Otherwise, you're kind of pandering to you know an audience that may not be there tomorrow. I don't know if you guys are seeing the same thing. Yeah, I guess what I, I would say is like I just really underscore what the both of you just said. Um, knowing what your customer cares about is really important, whether it's like humor or engagement or what they want to learn or what they need. Knowing what your business goals are and what your brand is is important. And that's how you put, you put those two things together. And that's how you deliver great content, whether it's an ad, it's an article, it's a blog post, it's a social post. I mean, personally, I really hate the word snackable. Um, it drives me sort of crazy. And the reason why I say that is I was actually part of the family founding group uh, for Twitter. And so at the when we started that, it was like 140 characters. Nobody's going to want to read stuff in 140 characters. Um, I was part of the founding group for Medium. And it was like, oh, the guy who created 140, who's going to read long-form content? But both were successful. Um, I think it's just what is the content? What is the medium? How do people want to share it? How do people want to digest it? Um, I mean, I'm 43 years old, and I, is that TMI? Um, but I, I watched, uh, I don't know if any, any of you follow Vlogmas on YouTube, um, but it's like millennials, like 15-year-olds and 22-year-olds, and I'm, I'm following them um, on their vlogs, and their vlogs are like 30 minutes, an hour long, and I listen to it on my commute. And so all the things you're taught about video of like three minutes or 60 seconds, it really depends on the content, the time you've got, where you are. So I think there's not a one-size-fits-all. It's, it's what is your consumer need and what are your brand goals, and then how do you put those two things together? And I would say my comment is, in all of this, it's really about that connection to the consumer. And you know, in defense of the snackable content of the, if you can have a greater frequency and have that touch point where you're getting them multiple times a day or once a day or that, that appointment viewing that they have, that's really what's important because they are developing that habit of the, I have to have this and I have to have it in the you know, length of content and in the time frame that I'm used to having it. So, you know, whatever it is, like you said, if they're, if the vlogger connects with their audience in the 13 minute bits once a week, that's great. But if you as a brand need to be providing the 30 seconds or the 90 seconds that your consumer wants, that's what gets that consumer to come back to you. Longer form OTT versus, you know, more snackable, you're going to have different parameters. So it could be 30 minutes, it could be 60, just knowing your audience and knowing your platform. So to follow up on that, the difference between evergreen, always on, and a little bit more limited approach, what are some advantages and disadvantages of having always on content or doing more sporadic posting or you know producing the content? Yeah, we've, we've got that for sure here. So a lot of the research content that we have is like how to buy a car, how to sell a car. That's pretty evergreen. It doesn't really change um, that much. So what we try to do is sort of keep that as evergreen, but as, as fresh as possible, so it's still relevant. Um, how to sell a car, maybe there's some new tools or new ways to do it that we want to refresh. Um, but having that evergreen content is really important for a couple of reasons. One, it's great SEO, so you start to rank and you build on that. People know about it, they're linking to it. Um, you become an authority on it, so this is what we're really known for. We're going to help you research your car. Um, and But then there's all the other stuff that sort of happens to support the brand. So reviews, like I said, is is something that we create all the time. Every time a new car comes out, we've got to figure out how do we create the content um, and get it up and then how do we promote it. And then you've got the social content, the marketing content that supports all of that. Um, so you've got to, to 
I think you, you really need both. You need the stuff that is going to support your search efforts, your marketing efforts, um, your SEO efforts, and your brand. And then you've got to create all of the other content that's going to engage and connect with your audience and also market um, to getting to that evergreen content. So it, both are really important. And it's I think the trick when you're creating this content is just finding that, that balance um, and how do you drive a lot of companies will create a lot of, you know, wonderful evergreen content, my, you know, ourselves included, um, and they don't think about how do you promote it. Um, so they'll create evergreen content and they'll say, well, the, the stuff that we promote in marketing is, is on social and it's completely different. Well, no, take something from that evergreen content and push that out to your social channels or to the point earlier of like create something different um, that you can push out on different social social channels. So you should be thinking about the ecosystem and how you connect them together um, because that's that's what really works from a consumer perspective, and more importantly, Google loves it when you're you're sharing in an ecosystem. So, and, and I don't think you'll win by turning the cameras on and off sporadically. Again, based on either it's built if sold. We've we've been very anti-built if sold um, for things unless they're anchored to a brand that already has heft. So if you don't have a place to put it where there's an organic audience, good luck building one from scratch. Even with some of the best laid promotional plans in the world, you have to have it either. On a platform, sure, but you've got to have it anchored to something that has meaning. Because um, how many people have worked on a three-part series that was seen by no one and has some views that came from somewhere below some fold from some ad network, whatever. It, if you want real engagement and real video viewing audiences, you have to go to right, fish where the fish are. You've got to go to where those audiences have been built. Um, I think the other thing to say is there's now enough scale and there's enough people that are doing this where you can partner in ways where you don't have to sit in a room with your team and say, first, the word viral video is the absolute worst, um, but you can go to people that say, who's already built the audience that we're trying to get after, and is there a cool execution to be, that still might be award-winning and very on-brand? And when you look at some of the work that's been done in the auto space, I don't know why I keep referring to auto, because we're at Edmonds, I suppose. Right, but, do it, do it. Um, <laughs> Even in the YouTube ecosystem, where you look at people that stay very true to who they are and they are on brand, and I'll mention creators like Devin Supertramp and people who say, I'm all about making super cool action-oriented videos and sometimes I'm gonna do it in partnership with an auto brand. It doesn't sell him out, he's got a massive audience and for the right audience or the right manufacturer, that might be a perfect fit. It's, uh, I think the new front is the funniest place ever because there's 37 presentations in two weeks and say everybody does an average of 10-ish new shows, so you're gonna see 370 shows in about a two-week span. Let's look at track record, and we've been super open about this. None of that stuff gets made, and it's because they're waiting around for somebody to help write the check to get it made, and those checks might come, they might not come, and it's not great for the space at large, for all of us who have a vested interest in digital doing well, to wait for those moments, because if we've learned anything from somebody like TV, it's they're making it. They might get canceled a week later, doesn't matter. They're making it, they're invested, they think it's real, they have promotional plans, and we have to do the same thing, I think, to get our fair shake in marketing conversations. Otherwise, they could just make it themselves, I think, in, in most cases. That's already starting to happen. If you look at a lot of the brands that are bringing that agency in-house, that knowledge in terms of building that, that content, and they're looking for partners to either distribute it or they'll put it through their social channels and they'll distribute it themselves. So the tables are turning now. It's not just you know the publishers that have the expertise to connect brands and make to make content, 
but the brands themselves are doing it right. And then the publishers, you're also creating your in-house agency. So that creates a little bit of you know, business tension, if you will, with the creative agencies that are working on behalf of the brands as well. So yeah. there's a lot of push and pull that's happening in the marketplace today. And, and I think people who are smartly navigating that world are saying, we're gonna play to our strength. If we're, our strength is cheeseburgers, we're gonna be big in the cheeseburger world and we're gonna have great marketing partnerships with people who might not make great cheeseburgers, but they make great videos. With very few exceptions, we've seen brands jump out and be full content creators at scale. And, and I'm, I'm like, I follow Red Bull, right? It's the best thing ever. But there, I haven't had a can of Red Bull since I was in college. And so I think about that. I'm like, they're more of a content entity to me than they are a creator of energy drink manufacturer. So I still think it's, it's exciting that brands are getting into this space. But when I see people launch their new series and I'm like that's gonna be tricky for them to do that of on their course. own. Of course, I think we're still at the early stage of, of the business because the right ecosystem will start to shake itself out. You know, I think we talked a little bit about this outside, which is to say, you look at people that are entities that have created commercials and have created feature films, and they think that they can create content and connect brands to buy it as well, which is the same thing you were saying. If you, know, you build it only if somebody buys it. There, it's a buyer's market today in the sense that there are so many opportunities in the market yet there are fewer buyers to actually get that out there. So, you know, table stakes are, you gotta get a good idea. And you've gotta have distribution, right? If you don't have those two, then you're not really a player in that space. So that naturally kind of, you know, through Darwinism, if you will, kind of segregates who the players are and, and who the fakes, so to speak. Well, that rolls into exactly what I wanna follow up on. Um, in terms of native, um, content, sponsored advertising, you've got to tell a good story. But why is telling a good story so important to that medium? Ooh, who wants to go first? Ooh, throw everybody a curve. Their audiences are real and they care a lot and they're so vocal, they're trained to be vocal, right? It's not, like if I used to not like my thing on TV, it's, I was like, all right, I change the channel or I turn my TV off or I do something else. Now people are on Twitter and they're like, what is this? What just happened? What was the fake Dunkin' Donuts commercial that just happened during The Voice? That was awkward. Why did that happen? What is this thing? And so we are highly attuned to having a very finicky and sensitive audience. And instead of having 300 channels of cable to choose from, they have 30,000 channels to choose from. And so they are at a moment or a click away from being on to the next video. So I think we take that more seri seriously than most. I also think the, you know, I was saying we're not like the vice, like there's a bloodbath coming in media and cable, whatever, but um, it is changing. It's changing really fast. And you don't have a business model in our case that forgives um, essentially mediocrity. We call the new world of consumers the content democracy. So we all get to decide what we're gonna watch that day. We all get to decide what videos we wanna watch. And if you don't get the thing that you want, how you want it, it is the most frustrating thing ever. And, and that's us at our collective ages, not when you're 18, that's the worst. So the, the model for us in digital that have come out of the digital space, there hasn't been carrier fees and things that said like, don't worry if you're the network that's like, okay, you'll find a way, whatever. Like we've been waiting for this moment where we can have a more realized financial model and we're still working on it. But it's more real now than it has been because you can make place, money in places that are real platforms that didn't exist a year ago. Yeah, and I, I hear you say, and it's a little bit more of an authenticity to your audience. And, and you know, you have to know your audience, you have to be authentic to, to what it is that they're doing. I'll give you an example. 
um, in, in our lifestyle content, which is clearly not as formal as our business content, we were uh, we were doing some videos and, and getting images and 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 trying to refine that to make it look better, right? Let, oh, let's let's get an image and let's look at something from a drone and get down and, and trying to make it real professional. Th those videos, those images, they weren't doing as well because it, it, the the lifestyle aspect was much more fun. It looked like somebody you know was filming the, the filming it. It was a little bit of shake, a little bit of wobble. It didn't quite look, you know, professional, but it looked clean. And so we had to go change back to make sure that when we were showing images and we were doing the videos, that they looked more handheld versus professional because it was authentic and true to the audience and that's what resonated. And I think you know, you, we've talked about, and Alex mentioned a couple things too, is if you have a plan, you understand your, your audience, then you can be true to them and, and your, your story will, will resonate with them. Yeah, I would say I've, I've been creating content um, online since 1995. So I've been doing it since before you could make money. So I'm sort of like Amish and very old school about sponsored content. Um, what I would say is in, in 2009, I was working with Anthropology and we had to launch um, a bridal brand. And then there was a, another wholesale brand that we actually made public. And at the time, working with... Um, bloggers was was super easy because this was a brand that women just loved. I mean, they spent like an hour and a half in the store. Like they loved this brand. And all I had to do was find people that loved this brand and talked about us online and say, hey, we're opening up a bridal store. Like, do you want to take a picture or come and visit? And it was like, yeah, like no money exchange. The content that they could create was extraordinarily authentic and energetic and they could capture our store and a brand in a way that we couldn't because anthropology would be so um, really like structured and didn't want to talk about itself as a as a sign that my very first day at anthropology as a CEO hire and my, my actual boss the creative director said I'm going to make sure you fail we don't need social media we don't want other people controlling our brand so it's like yeah I moved to Philly for this um, <laughs> but the, the point of that was is that because people loved our brand and could represent it in a, in, a, in a better way than we could, like we would use words like beloved to talk about a sweater where they're like, oh, it's just a really cool, pretty sweater that fits me. Um, that, was, that was marketing that, that we just couldn't buy and we didn't have to. Um, fast forward to you know, a year ago when I, I was working at Airbnb and when, the first thing when I joined, we had paid an influencer, um, just pre-me, we had paid an influencer $50,000 to do a couple of Instagram posts. And when I saw them, um, I thought he was promoting Ray-Ban. I mean, it was literally him on a beach, like with the picture through his glasses, and you could see the Ray-Ban logo on it. Um, and I was like, we paid $50,000 to promote Ray-Ban. Like, I, I, I don't understand that. And everybody's like, well, that's the going rate for sponsored content. And I, I can tell you, we didn't get one click or one like, or it didn't do anything. Um, when I was with UG Australia, it was the same thing. They had probably about half a million dollar budget to work with influencers. Zero ROI. did nothing for the business because it wasn't authentic. Um, at Airbnb, I actually set up criteria to work with influencers of sponsored content that they had to have stayed in an Airbnb previous to us even reaching out. Like, we would have to look to see if they had been a guest. Um, so that way, when they're capturing content, I don't need, from a brand perspective, I don't have to give much like guidance. It's them going on a trip and creating it. On the Edmund side, we're actually working with brands. So we'll work with like BMW or we just did something with Kia. Um, of, of they want to get our audience or our content skills. And the challenge that we have on that side is to make, is that too much? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I think we're okay. I think the music's coming on. You need the, crowd, to... <laughs> um, the challenge I have with with, with Edmunds is we've got um, you know all the, all of these like 
partners that want to give us money. And how do we say, yes, we want the money, but we make sure that that content actually resonates for our audience. So um, we don't want to create just ads. We want to actually create content that's useful. And I think you can brands can do that in a great way. Like sponsored content is not evil. It can be. Um, but if you just have a brand that wants to help you create great, useful, or fun or engaging content, it's not a bad thing. And I was going to say, what? I mean, being on the other side of it, on the talent representation side, we always encourage our clients to do only do things when they're authentic. The audiences are really smart. It does. It's not a good look for the influencer, and it's not a good look for the brand when it's something that seems very clunky. So, um, you know, I think there's there are always people who are in it for, you know, I'm going to get the fifty thousand dollar check for an Instagram post. Awesome, but I think as a long from a long term relationships pers perspective, we don't encourage it if it's not something that can come off as you know good for both sides. So real quick, how do you push back against an advertiser or a client, whoever it may be, that thinks they're being authentic but isn't? Um, I think it's, it's being careful about the brands you talk to, right? And it's sort of you know what what filters are we using to to do the matchmaking, right? And and we, you know, for us, short-term short, short -term money can be nice, but you don't want to see, you know, someone who might be a TV starlet today who has aspirations to be a serious movie star, you know, doing a, a teen clothing brand, right? It's not, it's not the direction that they're going in. So as a business, from the representation business, we've always had to think of, you know, it's not just where the person's career is now and what the opportunities are now, but what are the opportunities they're looking to have tomorrow and does this support that? The flip side of that though is if you are selling to the brands, right, you can certainly do a one-off, but you're expecting to develop a long-term relationship and if you're one and done and their KPIs aren't matched up with what the influencer doesn't deliver, then you're never gonna get back in the door with them. At least it's gonna take a long time. And that is not good for the ecosystem. You wanna be able to, I mean, obviously the influencer ecosystem right now is still continuing to grow and still very valuable, but if you're looking to monetize that again, you've gotta play it smart. There's too much information in the system today. It's not, you know, the old days of I put up a billboard in these locations and did sales go up or not and no one really knows where it's coming from. The analytics are too strong for someone to just sort of wave their hands and say, oh, that was great, let's do it again. I've got one more question on the content side of things and I want to move to more distribution side of things. But um, Facebook Live, I think, is a game changer. I think we all know that um, just because of the scale of it. So in terms of live TV, which is essentially what we're changing and talking about, how, is that a good or a bad thing? How can it be used properly? What might be a disaster? Not that you have to mention a particular client or a company, but just general thoughts about that. I'm going to give a comment as a consumer. I know one of the um, initial sort of Facebook Live hits was, you know, Martha Stewart doing, I think it was the cocktail shrimp or whatever. And it's like, it's Martha. Like, you love her if she's on TV. Her recipe is going to be the best version of the recipe that you want to do. Her product at Macy's is the cute thing that you're drawn to. It's really about that consistency and the strength of the brand and Facebook Live is a great new platform um, and it's interesting but I think a lot of people tuned into that because they're like it's Martha effing Stewart live <laughs> right that's a, that's a version of her that I haven't had before and it's I don't know exactly what it is but it's going to be something fun anybody else want to weigh on Facebook Live or any other live video uh, I think we're 
still incredibly early, which is not to say every, what's something everybody knows, but right now it's about the very personal experience of somebody that I like, a Martha Stewart, in a one-to-one -one not produced scenario typically of I'm eating lunch or I'm hanging here and let's do this thing. And, and I think that's not a great way to measure the space at large about where live can take us. We had what I'd consider even an experiment, although it was a, a big bet, uh, of a program called Smosh Live. Smosh has I think six years ago, Time Magazine called it the SNL of the internet. And we aim to fulfill that someday in an SNL style show. And it was shot and we brought in people that had very adept live programming, but it wasn't shot on a phone. It was shot in a studio. It was multi-camera, multi-sets, multi-sketches. It lasted 90 minutes um, and had a big sponsor activation around it. And to us, that was moving the needle as far as live programming on the internet. It was very purposely programmed. It was very purposely eventized. And not that we're sandbaggers, but people internally were like, how's it gonna do? I mean, like, we have no clue. We have a good instinct, but there's no track record here. And for the most part, nobody said, here's what a rating for live is. And it subsequently, it peaked around 70,000 concurrents, um, and then went on to do an on-demand in the neighborhood of about 3 million views for a 90-minute show that was on YouTube on a Friday night. And for us, I think as we think about live going forward, it's not necessarily, it's not, the thing that's gonna move the needle is not one person with one phone in one place. It's gonna be, can programming live there that's scheduled and purposeful and can it happen on a repeat basis as a part of people's overall programming mix? And I think you're starting to see that. I think big bets from big media that say, I'm gonna do what I do on E, but on Facebook every single day. And I think that's gonna habituate the consumer. Then it's not just a random thing where somebody's eating a cool foam espresso situation, they are watching something that they love, which is what we've seen work in the rest of digital. Well, look at what's happening with esports and Twitch. You know, live gaming is a tremendous millions of people watching that on a daily basis. You already have it today. The question is, will that be relevant and salient for other types of content moving forward on the various platforms? That's what the TBD is. Obviously, it's whatever consumers gravitate towards, but they're already there watching Twitch and watching some of the other esport platforms, you know, watching other people play video games live. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want you to take what I'm going to say with, with a grain of salt. Um, and I'll caveat this by saying when I, um, I knew the founder of Twitter before we started Twitter and I, we were testing it at South by Southwest. And I remember walking down the street with him and saying, this is never going to work. Like, you should get another job. So take what I'm going to say with a grain of salt, uh, knowing how I played out on Twitter. Um, <laughs> What I would say is for Facebook Live, I'm challenged from a brand perspective um, and, and not from a media perspective, but from a brand perspective of, of how does it work. Um, we are testing Facebook Live. Um, we've done several episodes. Um, I worked with um, Citrix, which did go to meeting and go to training. So I come from a webinar world where somebody wants to learn in real time and do Q&A. And that was really successful. That was like really nurturing um, programs that we did uh, for lead generation. So I believe in that live um, interaction and, and Q&A. I think for Facebook Live, I, I haven't seen a brand really be successful at it yet. Um, and that's not to say it couldn't be. I think we went through Periscope and a whole bunch of things where it's like, you just try it and see if it works and maybe it doesn't. I know a, a, a blogger that does Periscopes um, and, and she does really well and her audience loves it. They're, you know, stay-at-home moms and, and they've got the time, they're there and it's a way to connect. Um, for us, I think we've got to, to see, like, do people want to learn from us in that way? Um, I, I don't know. I think live video has its value. I don't know if Facebook Live in particular does for all mediums or all brands. Uh 
Okay, we'll pick it up there next time for part two of our three-part podcast on content creation and distribution, live from the Edmonds headquarters in Santa Monica. This is your host, Joel Metzger. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the AMA Los Angeles podcast. For more information on the American Marketing Association's Los Angeles chapter and to find out about upcoming events, follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. This podcast was produced by Joel Metzger and Icebox Logic.